This week on Tuesday Noon, part one of our conversation with Steve Burt from Clarity Innovations. Is technology getting it done in the classroom? The largest high school graduation class since the baby boomers is on the way into the hallowed halls. Do our faculty have the technical tools and the skills to keep up with them? That's Tuesday Noon for June 6th, 2006. Welcome, everybody, to Tuesday Noon, our inaugural edition. Uh, I'm si- my name is Pete Wright. Uh, I'm sitting around the corner here with... Mary Bradbury Jones. Mary, what have you been up to? Uh, just getting ready for the summer. Yeah? Yeah. You teaching a lot? I am teaching a lot. Yeah. I've been doing quite a few it, online classes. It hurts teaching online no. during the summer. Oh, uh, no. No, teaching, teaching during the summer hurts any way you any look way you at go. it. Yeah, I, I was a horrible summer student, and I'm even a worse summer instructor. I just I can't do it. I can't do it. You know? Senioritis all year. No, exactly. No, no, no. And that uh, those are the dulcet tones of Mr. Jamie Whitley. Hello. Thank you. Again. Thank you. Good. I have been teaching. Not as much as Mary, though. I'm, I'm trying to take the summer off because it's time for a break. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You, need it. you look like you need a break. I do. I know it. Thanks. You're welcome. You look lost good a too. lot of hair. Yeah. yeah. I'm going bald on teaching so much. I'm still prettier than you, though, Pete. So That's I'm right. Going. That's right. The bar is low. Yeah, the bar exactly. is low. And our, uh, our esteemed guest, and I say esteemed because this guy, uh, he's quite a podcaster. He has an audience already. Wow. So yeah. we file this under yeah. writing right. on the coattails. Three, three extra people. <laughs> 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 Three people downloaded it last month. But woo, That's right. And it was my mom. <laughs> <laughs> you sound so good, son. We love you anyways. And we can't make fun of the guests. Uh, this is uh, uh, Steve Burt, Steve uh, from Clarity Innovations. Uh, Steve, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I work as, I'll give you the official title, I'm the Manager of Content and Research for Clarity Innovations. Uh, we're an ed- education technology company, uh, and what we try to do is match emerging technologies, whether they're um, things like podcasting, weblogs, a lot of the Web 2.0 technologies uh, with the needs of education and other organizations. So we do a lot of work uh, in Portland and in the Northwest uh, with schools, with Typically for us, that's K through 12, although we do some higher ed work. Uh, and then we do a lot of work with corporations and organizations who have interests in education and want to uh, disseminate that stuff out. Uh, as for me, I, I do spend a lot of time, um, as it were, paying attention to the blogosphere, podcasting, um, and I think you know more particularly looking at the latest technologies, that's sort of the research component of my job, and what kind of Web 2.0 technologies can and are having an impact on education because uh, I think a lot of a lot of the tools out there we were laughing before we started talking about myspace um, you know certainly aren't targeted at the education audience I mean, so many of them are either targeted towards fun think myspace YouTube that kind of thing or they're targeted towards the business world um, like an Amazon or an eBay development and and what we try to do, or in particular what I try to do, is see if there are ways, applications, whether you modify them or use the existing ones that, that can be used in education. How are you using MySpace in education? I only ask because it's blocked here. I mean, nobody can even get to it. Well, I mean, I, th- I think in, in the case of something like a MySpace or thinking about, you know, AOL's new new personal sites, the so-called uh, MySpace killer, the idea is to look at those or look at look at something like YouTube as models for interaction. The point is for 
at least at K-12, the vast majority of our teachers, making some pretty broad sweeping generalizations, are not familiar with the tools. They've heard of MySpace, mm-hmm. probably because they've read it on a newspaper, and more than likely that was a print copy of the newspaper, not an online copy. Not that there's a point there, but I think there's a <laughs> subtle point, perhaps. Uh, but these are great models. I mean, you talk to a, um, I was talking to a, a good friend of mine who teaches back in Rhode Island, and he, he teaches fifth and sixth graders. And he did a pretty informal, you know, he didn't mean it as a scientific survey of kids who'd used MySpace or YouTube. And we're talking fifth and sixth graders, so 10 mm-hmm. and 11 year old. A third, 30 to 40 percent of them wow. have their own MySpace account. regularly check MySpace. You know, of his, you know, sampling, there were very, very few who hadn't heard of these technologies. So we're talking about tools that 9, 10, 11-year-olds can do much more than just, you know, getting an email to show up on a web page, a block of text. We're talking about music. We're talking about video. uh, And when you start combining those with... um, though our audio audience can't see Pete's lovely new MacBook. Um, But you start looking at the tools out there and how they've become easier to use, whether it's something like the iLife software uh, from Mac. It's so easy to make audio recordings, edit them, add video. So while I'm not working with any teacher or group saying, you know, you should have all of your students have their own MySpace page as part of their um, curriculum, what we what we do use or, or have built for many schools are protected. Per, you know, we start with the sort of personal web blog um, where every student has their own blog, and I know you guys do a lot of that here at University of Phoenix, and then start adding the kind of parallel features, the social networking tools that they've come to expect um, from a tool like MySpace. So there isn't, I, I wouldn't argue that there's a one-to-one Correlation, but it's the same concept, right? I mean, it's really this idea of being able to provide rich content in Mm -hmm. some kind of fashion and network with other people in whatever your sphere of influence is, right? And you touch one friend, you touch another, you touch another. So then you're just producing content, pushing it out there, letting people interact with each other. And if you really think about what education is, higher education, particularly as we look at you know adults going back to school, a lot of it. I mean, it's not just the content; it's also meeting people and opening up doors and avenues and all those sorts of things. So it's the same type of thing. Just sure. We, can, we talk about right? it as network. You know, we talk about it as networking. And, you know, you could go to the Harvard Business School and take courses at the graduate right. level on establishing and, you know, you know, expanding your business network. And, and exactly this is the same is. model. I mean, Absolutely. the other point I'd make about a tool like MySpace is from a content position. And I'm not talking about content in terms of we need to have administrators at, at various education levels paying attention and monitoring in some sort of, you know, Alberto Gonzalez National Security Council kind of method. <laughs> but if you want to know what's on the mind of your students, what sure. interests them, mm-hmm. what focuses sure. them, you know, what appeals to them, that's but a great place. Those sites are great places to look. Are administrators watching what people say? I mean, not only because there's the positive side, right? So there's the side of what do my students think, what are they learning, what are they saying, and all those sorts of things. But is, there's the potential for abuse as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, there was something in the news just the other day, right? I forget the name of that. What was that? Well, there's, ac- there's been several, actually, yeah. where well, they've posted something on MySpace and the administration's found out about it. Yeah, I mean, Wilsonville, but, here locally, their school right. district had a, had a, you know, a fairly significant incident happen earlier this year where during student body elections, you know, various students on MySpace posted some really derogatory and discriminatory remarks uh, against one of the candidates. Um, and, you know, and 
at that point, the school, I don't know if the school board or the administration, you know, kind of stepped in because they were seeing that as, you know, less of a free speech issue and more of a slander or libel issue. And I think that's probably the appropriate point at which yeah. they have to step in. A well, line has to be drawn somewhere. But it doesn't also depend, though, if you're hosting it as a school. So if it's your oh, sure. technology, then the line is different than if it's out in MySpace, out in the middle of nowhere, and you have no real authority over it, right? I mean, it becomes... Comes well, which is the real discussion we've been having too. Um, even even here, in in talking about finding ways to to allow our students and our alum to connect, uh, it's the whole build it or buy it in terms of the yeah. technology infrastructure. Mm-hmm. If you open it up to a partnership, then all of a sudden you open yourself up to the risk of user generated content yeah. that doesn't fit with what you with the message mm-hmm. you're trying to get out there. Right, everybody's sure. facing it. I mean, what I advocate when I, you know, work with, say, high school teachers and do, do training and professional development for them is not necessarily that they go in and sign up for a MySpace account, but, but oftentimes I do recommend they do that. Not, not that they're going to start putting a lot of information, but they might put a little bit about themselves. I mean, I, I taught high school for about eight years, and it's pretty typical for kids to want to know. Actually, they want to know far too much about your personal life. <laughs> but, you know, you can put some stuff. And, and, and I use different sites. I mean, I myself use – you could learn a lot about me if you look at my Flickr site, which is, you know, an online photo sharing site. Because when I travel for work or for pleasure, I put pictures up so you can see, you know, pictures of me, say, vacation I took last fall or business trip I took in February. But what's the value of that from an educational point of view? So you're that high school teacher or college instructor and you've got that set up. What's the value to the student? And is that something they're asking for? And, and what does it bring back to them? I mean, I think that's, I think that's a good point and, and somewhat of an open question. But my feeling when I talk to, to high school teachers is it puts you at a sort of level playing field, even if you might not be as technically adept as many of your students. It puts you within sort of one or two more circles within their kind of their sphere of what they're comfortable with or what they're used to. So if they see a request come on their MySpace to add you as a teacher, as one of their friends, mm-hmm. they can choose to reject that. But what it's telling them and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make this sound too heavy-handed. But what it's telling them is that there is a broader audience out there who's looking at the content, and some of those are people they know, their close friends. Some of those are more acquaintances, and that could be teachers, instructors, other people within their, you know, sort of broader sphere. And then there's the whole kind of world, the big circle, which is the unknown internet out there. And this, to me, here I'll try actually to answer your question. Here's the educational import of that. And that's trying to get students, whether it's at the elementary level or at the college level, to understand what I think often gets fundamentally lost in the ease of use of these tools. And that is your content is is out there. It becomes part of whether you want to call it public record or public domain. And it's more or less permanent. You know, I mean yeah. Far, far too often, I talk to students or teachers and, and say, you know, show them a site like the Internet Archive and the Wayback Machine, you know, and you can see websites going back to, you know, 94, 95. There's this history, and if you Google someone's name, you're going to find content. And the more adept you are at searching, the more content you can pull out about what a student wrote. So although it's, it's a little bit, you know, crying wolf, I think there are some real issues there about Internet literacy to teach students and that is when you go on your blog and if you put information on there that's if you go really extreme and talk about an example of you know these kids in Wilsonville who wrote a lot of hate speech 
that content's there. It's, you know, it's been spidered or, you know, archived by all kinds of search engines and prospective employers five years down the road. Oh, as yeah. You know, we all assume these funny sort of Moore's Law curves about how much more searching and more content. <laughs> Presumably, you know, some of those kids are going to end up in applying for a job with, with somebody Absolutely. who does a kind of search record on them. And they're going to see, and you know, if someone takes the time to go through... Um, the kind of content that someone has owned. Well, the news is full of stories like that, right? Yeah. I mean, pictures on the web, you know, or photos mm-hmm. or things that you've written and they get fired or you don't get a job because sure. of it or, mm-hmm. or whatever. I you know. just this morning sat into a session um, with uh, Ron Bates, who is the nicest guy in the world. Plug for Ron Bates. He's a just really great guy. And he's, you know, he's a former physicist and mechanical engineer, and, and now he is an unbelievable networker. I mean, he knows everybody. I mean, you could look at those sites like LinkedIn. He is the top uh, networked networker on LinkedIn. <laughs> I mean, he's, millions and millions of people know this guy. And uh, so he's, he is a, 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 a retained executive search uh, guy right now. And, and he did a study and said uh, 63% of recruiters and hiring managers will Google you before they agreed to an interview. Wow. 63%. Put your name in and see what pops back. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. I think that's really interesting. I mean, first of all, it may not be you that they find. It may be anybody else. But but what if they do find the, uh, you know, gosh, it's the Mm 15-year-old, you know, the, the pics that you thought were cute that were on your Flickr account, and now suddenly they're they're not so cute. Sure. Right. I mean, you, know, you, know, you never look cute in your speedos. I let's <laughs> so uh, just set the record straight. There. I always <laughs> regret that tattoo. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, Mary, one of the questions I have for you is as because I know you spend a lot of time training new faculty, mm-hmm. probably more so than any of the rest of us. So as you're going through that process, what are you finding in terms of the acceptance of technology? And not only the acceptance of it, but again, part of my concern is is that it's all cool and we don't know exactly what we're going to use it for yet and mm-hmm. how it impacts. So kind of tell me about what are people looking at and what are they thinking and what do you see? Or maybe there's not an acceptance. I don't know. Um, I would say that across the board there is an acceptance. Um, particularly the training program that we do is we, we put them through a program that mimics a uh, blended curriculum class. So they have face-to-face instruction along with online instruction. Um, and so I think, for one, that experience is what helps them get to acceptance. One of the first things that uh, instructors will say is, wow, there's a social element out here that I never thought would be there. Um, and that, I think, was one of their first roadblocks to thinking about online learning, was you're going to lose the social network. Um, and so that's a big surprise for them. I, I think that the second thing that um, they see or they experience is how rich the discussions can go, depending on how deep the class wants to go, which direction they'd like to go, um, and how you can have multiple great conversations happening at the same time, and because of our environment, where we do it in an asynchronous, asynchronous environment, so we're not live time, I can come back and go back through threads later if I'd like to pick up some of those nuggets or to, to uh, glean that knowledge that maybe I didn't have time to. So I think that the experience, first of all, really opens them to it. 
But it's not always just the training. Many times it's not until the instructor's actual first class where they're in charge, they're, they're facilitating it, um, and they're leading it where they really feel the benefits of it. So, for example, um, I know that one of, the, one of the things we were talking about earlier in one of the articles when we were mentioning them was, are instructors, is it fear of the technology? Is it, are they afraid that they can't um, have the type of learning that they're used to from the traditional classroom environment. One of the um, candidates that we had recently, uh, longtime uh, educational expert, PhD, was very resistant to the idea, but I think um, was at least open to it, and quite frankly, um, I think was hoping that he'd go through it and we'd say, well, you're fine to teach on ground, and then he'd just continue down that path. Um, well, he went through the training, and, and towards the end of the training, he was already starting to change some of his paradigms, but it wasn't until his first class we forced him to do uh, one of our FlexNet classes with the blended curriculum. And about halfway through, he stopped me when he saw me um, at a meeting and was like, I love it. Oh, my gosh. I never fathomed it could be this way. The type of discussions, the level of discussions, to get to experience the ahas of every student. I think is very motivating and empowering for instructors. If, if that's why you teach, if, exactly. That's yeah. and if that's why you're teaching, then then you get into that environment and it's almost um, addictive and energizing. And the instructors um, love to see the learning happen. Force force more peer learning. Let the peers learn from each other first before the instructor ever steps in. Those okay. kinds of things. So, I think in general you have more of an acceptance. Now, you know, seven years ago would have been a right. whole different story. And then where does it go? Well, and also as a, as a sort of correlated to that, I think now we have more acceptance, but we have more acceptance for new teachers, you know? I mean, it, yes, it's exactly. These, They're brand new. Yeah, I mean, we yes. were talking about before the, the propagation of these online high schools, which, I, you know, I beg so many issues that I want to talk about at some point. But it's this issue of, wow, we're... We're with the high school environment where we were with online education 20 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which says, you know, here's a big transition, Florida virtual, or transition, Florida virtual, uh, or online high school, is that what we yeah. call it? Florida virtual school district. Florida virtual school district with, yeah. you know, increasing numbers of students, whether that they are enculturated with online learning through, they're already homeschooled or they're planning on going to a university online, whatever it is. Their faculty, their training techniques, are, or their, their teaching techniques are going to have to have to change. I, I think, in a way, and, and Mary, you were you were getting at this point, and, it, and it's one that I, I try to make pretty often when dealing with educators as well is the issue of collaboration. For so long, you know, when, when I came up in the world of teaching, which is not too long ago, the early '90s, you know, we talked so much in teacher school about you know, how you do collaborative or group learning, and so much of it is so very forced. And, you know, I knew it. My students knew it. I think m- most of us as educators know, you know, when you p- when you force a group of, you know, four disparate people to work together and you assign one of them the note taker and you're going to be the facilitator uh, because we don't call people leaders anymore, <laughs> um, you know, you end up with this kind of forced group where they've been kind of given tasks that aren't at, they're not at all organic. There isn't any real genuine collaboration going on. And to me, what these tools allow, and it, it starts with blogging and threaded discussions to allow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more people to, to participate in more collaboration. And then it, I think, branches 
off from there. For, for me, when I start demonstrating tools that I think cause teachers the most, uh, you see the most light bulbs pop on in their heads are looking at tools like Rightly. I don't know if you're all familiar with this one, but it's online word processing. But it's it can be collaborative, meaning you can have multiple people editing the same document simultaneously. And so at, at that point, you're talking about Working on a document, having people editing it can be something as simply as, you know, a group taking notes together and then you've got the sort of shared power of 20 note takers as opposed to just one um, to a lot of other tools. I mean, the, the latest, I think this is a pretty nifty tool. I, some of us have probably use Visio if you want to do flowcharts or spreadsheets sure. or if you're in the classroom at K-12, you use Inspiration. You know, that's kind of the, the piece of software marketed. Uh, at K-12, there's a great online tool called Gliffy, G-L-I-F-F-Y, and it's rightly for spreadsheets, flowcharts, and planning, meaning uh -huh. you get a little online graph, you know, off, off a browser, and multiple people can log in, and you can be, you know, yeah. dropping in your decision diamonds and blocks. No, it's more like the real world, right? I mean, that, that's how things are done at work. That's yeah. how you do things at home. I mean, the... the Typical or traditional education model has been that teacher up front just passing you something and then you take some kind of test to say, yes, I got it. Yeah. And in the most times, you just kind of memorized it and forgot it and those sorts of things. Well, so this and moves in to, that, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, this just moves us to the real world, which is we don't do that mm -hmm. in day-to-day -day business and operation in our lives. It is more of a collaborative effort and learning from each other and teaching each other. And so, so then faculty become that facilitator of helping you mm -hmm. do that versus just imparting X, Y, Z and having you return it. But exactly. yeah. Well, where I was going to jump in is in that model of the, the traditional and I stand at the front of the room and I spew knowledge into your brain and you hopefully retain that knowledge until you take the test and you walk out the door and 90% is gone. Yeah. Um, one that has to do with the level of learning that it's, being, that it's being taught to, but the other one is that's really only geared towards the auditory learner unless the instructor's using a great deal of visuals up there mm -hmm. as well as they're right. lecturing. So you've got, you know, two two major learning styles at a disadvantage already based on the structure of, of the traditional environment. They over time we've all been there. Um, I'm hands-on learner. I struggled mm -hmm. in the educational system. I learned how to adapt and function within what it was. It wasn't until later in my life that I discovered that Actually, it wasn't about you and your intellectability. It was actually how you were being taught. But the whole time going through, starting to think, well, I'm not smart enough as these other people. I'm not capable like these other people. When I was just at a disadvantage, I had to work harder based on how I was being taught. Yeah, uh, and, and so I think by bringing in technologies, you have the ability to hit multiple learning styles in multiple different ways so that the student connects. This has been Tuesday Noon for June 6, 2006. For more information on some of the stories we've talked about today, check out our profile on delicious, del.icio.us slash Tuesday Noon. Please send us an email about just about anything to Tuesday12 at gmail.com, and we'll talk all about you on the air. Until next time, see you Tuesday Noon.